start. Be Real is presented by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means you can paint and write, design and write, and make a film and write. You can also just write. Look for their faculty member Leslie Carroll Roberts' critically acclaimed Here is Where I Walk, Episodes from a Life in the Forest, out now from University of Nevada Press, and Adam Nemetz, We Can Save Us All, from Unnamed Press. For more information, power on your computer and visit cca.edu slash writing MFA. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life Be real! Okay, let's do a podcast about Al Pacino. Welcome, one and all, to a movie reviewing, reappraising, genre hopping show on the Playlist Podcast Network. This is Be Real. My name is Chance Solom Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. Do you like birthdays, Noah? Birthdays? I love birthdays. Not my own birthday, but I like other people's birthdays. You like other people's who are in like a round number that qualifies as like an editorial hook, right? Yeah, much the way I reconsidered my own existence uh, at 30, we're going to use a round number to reassess someone else's significance. Someone far more significant than me. It's 80 trips around the sun for Al Pacino. So to celebrate, we're going to talk about his many detective movies in a legendary filmography. But yeah, Alfredo James Pacino, born April 25, 1940. That's right. That's um, incredible. Congrats to him on on making it this far and in having like a pretty good 2019. He's got a great couple scenes in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and uh, the Jimmy Hoffa performance in The Irishman, which while we like poke some light fun at it, is definitely his like best work in 10, 15 years. It's no The Hangman. <laughs> Don't talk about The Hangman yet. Um, it's, it's no Danny Collins. So what do we, anything off the top about like this group of movies? Like what do these detective films tell us about Pacino? Well, I guess I, I went into this set of movies thinking that this is going to be like the same character in six different plots. And luckily enough, I guess, well, maybe for better or worse, uh, it's not really. It's true. It is... Maybe four and a half different guys uh, <laughs> working their way through mostly urban crime. I think I was sort of surprised to find, too, that, uh, you know, it's not like his intelligence or his sharpness that, like, is primarily conveyed through these characters. It's like a it's a weathering. He, like, inhabits the detective archetype and makes them seem credible by like the tone of their exhaustion which mounts throughout the each of these movies and throughout his whole career and it got me thinking about how the first two michael corleone performances arguably the two performances that he's most famous for are kind of the outliers of his filmography like you know michael corleone is a man whose power lies in his being very put together and his being a step ahead and his not saying very much but this is a slate of characters 
who just like exist at the very end of their rope morally spiritually socially and that's that's quintessential pacino in my mind for sure yeah it's interesting that it's not only movies in which uh, al pacino plays a police officer or a detective it's it's usually also when a police officer comes to the end of their career mm-hmm. that's true yeah is like that there's a lot of, of death and or retirement in a lot of these so let's name the movies real quick we're gonna go from the sure. 70s to the 2010s yeah let's do all six real fast serpico 1973 the controversial cruising from 1980 sea of love from 89 heat from 1995 insomnia from 2002 and then hangman from 2017 you needed 15 years off to prepare for the hangman is it just hangman it's not the hangman it We've been saying The Hangman, but in fact, the movie is just called Hangman. I can't believe we watched that goddamn movie. You want to start with Servico? So, 73 here. This is right He's between just, Godfathers. Yes, yeah, it's the next year after The Godfather and before Dog Day Afternoon. Which finds him working with Sidney Lumet again, as, as this movie does. Yeah. And this movie is interesting, too, because, I mean, much like this exercise here, it kind of starts at the end and then works its way back to the beginning. And so you know from the opening montage that this bearded Al Pacino guy got shot in the fucking face and they're rushing him to the hospital and people are looking at him like they're upset that something happened, but they don't love this guy. Hey, Frank, you want a piece of this? How come you didn't stay for the fun? That's not my kind of fun. You talk to me. Save yourself. Hey, Frankie! How you doing? You keep asking me that. What's the matter with you? Well, I thought you were coming over to the house. Margaret invited Marianne over. Hey, Pasquale. I'm going to tell you something. See, all day long, I work with cops, right? Mm-hmm. Now, when I go out, I see Marianne. Her father's a cop. Her brother's a cop. Her uncle's a cop. I got a feeling she's a cop, too. <laughs> I must have been nine, ten years old. I was this big. All my life, I wanted to be a cop. It's like I can remember nothing else. So what do you think, Frank, about the money? I don't know. But I'm not broke, and I don't have a family. I want to stick my neck out. It's already out, Frank. Not taking the money. We cycle back to seeing Serpico graduating from the police academy and starting out as this sort of, you know, very do-gooder cop from like a funny Italian-American family. And from the opening scene where he doesn't quite understand that the sandwich that this deli guy gives you you should be accepted for free, but also there's like an implicit arrangement between the business owners of this community and the police Yeah, in sort of a, shall we say racket? But it's interesting. That's basically what you're going to see for the next two hours of this movie is him trying to like do the job he was hired for and make the salary he was promised. And right. everyone around him is just like, no, you're going to like eat this. You're going to buy into this this money system that's going on. 
We should say before we get too much further that this is based on the life of a real-life detective, Frank Serpico, who went on to be this lifelong advocate against uh, police abuse and bring about this the development of this um, investigative unit to weed out corruption within the NYPD. But this, in terms of placing this in genre, it's more of a whistleblower movie than a detective movie. Would you agree? I definitely think this movie has more in common with like the insider than totally. it does with maybe any of the other movies we're going to watch because they're not specifically solving a case. Yeah. Like the other ones have like a central, usually serial killer plot to them. And that's not what this one is at all. And it at some points it becomes something far stranger. Like when it goes into the years between Frank realizing that the police is kind of corrupt and then like him finding himself as like a West Village bohemian. Right. And then sort of like circling back now in plain clothes to be like, hey, remember when you guys were corrupt two years ago? What's going on with that? Still happening? I I guess I'll just say that it would, it's just shocking in retrospect to hear the register of his voice in this film. To hear like what he goes for in certain scenes. Like there's really upset and just like kind of upset and like defeated, but you know, just sometimes he's just a little sleepy. He really like goes for an interesting range of emotions here. Cause he's also kind of a, like a bizarre character. Totally. Frank Serpico moves weirdly, looks strange, is trying, like you said, trying on all these different um, personas. He, it is almost like at a certain point in the movie, he's just, he like tells his seemingly steady girlfriend, all my friends call me Paco. <laughs> and you're like, what? They do? And she's like, what? They do? This is a guy with so many different dimensions to his personality. They're almost split. Absolutely. Yeah. And I was texting you about it too, because physically... I mean, and I guess morally, too, he almost reminds me of, like, if the television character Frasier was a police officer. Like, that show is grounded by this kind of dandy with, like, his own perceived moral hierarchy who bumps into the other people around him who are living by this unspoken social code that has an equilibrium to it. And he dresses outrageously. I totally agree with that. And I had down in my notes that more than like a crime movie, it reminds me of a heist. It's just a movie about not fitting in. And like the primary way by which he doesn't fit in is that he doesn't take money. But there are even like, you know, scenes that take place in locker rooms where you just see this sort of diminutive, squirrely little man like stroll in, waving his arms all around. And it's just like, he doesn't fit in in the senior PE class and they're going to beat him up for it. It's almost like, I mean, we can talk about this next with Cruising, too, but it's a movie that's, like, very troubled also by homophobia. And it doesn't, it's sort of about, like, how men relate to each other and, like, the trust they build. Like, it's not surprising that one of the first negative interactions that Serpico has with a superior officer is him getting accused of like blowing someone because they came out of the bathroom at a similar time. Right. And then on like the way into the bathroom, he had like been to the New York ballet with his date the night before and was like trying to show one of his coworkers again in sort of like a way you do where it's like you come back from like 10th grade in the summer and you're like, look at this thing I found out. I learned how to pirouette. And then your guy's like, that's not what we do here. (laughs) That's not what the straight guys do. And then, uh, 
And then, yeah, he goes into the bathroom. Yeah, that becomes a weird, like, a weird undercurrent of how he won't get his shield. Because, like, years later, they're like, well, that one bald guy in that one precinct thinks you're gay. But the movie has enough scenes to show that he's not gay. (laughs) There's plenty. There's plenty of scenes in all of these movies of him hooking up with women. All these movies, like, sort of skirt on the line of, well, maybe not Hangman, but a lot of these movies skirt (laughs) on the line of Al Pacino's sexuality, but all have scenes, like, very cleverly tucked in there where it's like, he sleeps with women, guys. (laughs) Maybe, or not so cleverly, especially, like, yeah, cruising. But Uh, this one has that, too, where, you know, you could easily maybe even have an audience make the criticism of this movie in 1977 or 1973 of him being like maybe too, too gay on screen. So that's why they kind of give him that nightlife where he has, you know, the girlfriends and everything. I mean, of course, Frank Serpico ended up marrying four women at the same time. Is that true? So plenty, of, yeah, plenty of source material for a, a hyper masculinity boiling just underneath the surface. There, I did not know that. Um, the era in his life that is most interesting, I think, are those West Village scenes. Like he's got that girlfriend who, like, says, "Will you?" They're in the bathtub, and she's like, "Will you marry me in a month?" Because, like, otherwise, like, I'm just gonna marry this other guy and go to New Mexico. Like this sort of. Him trying to swing loose and also like the scene at the party where he's like, you got to stop telling people I'm a cop because they all hate me. Those are like, that's the interesting social experiment. I think one of the biggest bummers of the movie is that the steady relationship with the neighbor at the end becomes just a really boring cop wife dynamic. Yeah, it becomes the I'm married to the job. (laughs) Yeah, I only am who I'm chasing. That's right. To, to cut yeah, heat. it does go into some of those. Well, all these movies have their their tropes about how Al Pacino just like can't make a romantic relationship work because of his dedication to being a good or at least like successful police officer. Yeah, or just absorbing what the job shows him. Let me ask you this. Did you think that this movie had you seen it before? Never seen it. Did you think it was maybe going to have like a little bit more action in it? Sure, like like crime stuff. Yeah, like them solving crimes and less like fucking Tony Roberts like pacing around and like <laughs> a you know you know, auditioning for Annie Hall or something. Yeah, so I I think I'm with you because I this movie's sort of curious because the 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 character is iconic, the name is iconic, Al Pacino in this role is iconic, the idea of the movie is iconic, but it's not a movie that like people bring up a lot as timeless or rewatchable or deep. And then you watch it, and I think on one level it is exceedingly well-made, as most Sidney Lumet movies are. Like, the the pacing and the flashbacks and the idea of, like, are we really just going to, like, move forward in time, like, in reverie at the beginning? And it, I think it totally works. I think it scoots by very well. But, yeah, the ways in which it becomes, I don't know, the ways in which he becomes less interesting which maybe is sort of the point. Like, his character doesn't really culminate. It's just like a story that, ha- an investigation that sort of has to, but it's beyond his control. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I, I think, if anything, what I am impressed by is that central performance there. I yeah. just think that in that early 70s way, the crime at the center of it is less specific and thus, like, more meandering. Like, it becomes a picaresque of, like, 
them busting specific like captains of specific precincts that are doing these things mm-hmm. leading up to like leading up to the drug deal that you know renders him uh shot into face <laughs> you stupid fuck frank i didn't know you you didn't know me you fire without looking you fire without a warning without a fucking brain in your head gang we rate movies with a specific rating system on this show and we've got a, a short explainer, revamped and freshened up, to explain how we do that. On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories. A good or bad for technical quality, and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. One small, we play our dangerous game. Good-bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad-good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. Bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered, unfortunately, include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, Master. Got all that? Time for a rating. Serpico for you, my friend. I think it's a good bad. Okay. I think it's got, like, a good performance at the center of it, and it's, you know, entertaining in this context. Um... But I think if you haven't seen it, you should see it. But I don't know that I'm going to be running back to this movie at the top of all six of these. I think I've. I think on principle, I'm going to have to give it a good good because I think it might be in the top two or three of all the movies we watched here. Although, but if there, there if there is a slam on it, it's the fact that it ultimately is a character study that in the end is like not as depthful a character study as I want it to be. Like in the absence of that crime, it's just like, let me know what is at the absolute heart of this guy. And I'm not even sure I got that in the end. No. Which is unsatisfying, but I'll still give it a good, good. All right. To cruising. To cruising. 1980. A police detective goes undercover in the underground S&M gay subculture of New York City to catch a serial killer who's preying on gay men. How would you like to disappear? Disappear? Go undercover. You know this man? Who's here? I'm here. You're here. These victims are all the same physical type. What about him, Skip? Late 20s, 140, 150 pounds, dark hair, dark eyes. Have you ever seen him before? I want to send you out there to see if you can attract this guy. How where? It's William Friedkin on a fucking heater coming off (laughs) French Connection, (laughs) The Exorcist, and Sorcerer. I mean, this is the kind of movie of somebody who thinks they can do no wrong. Yeah. And then the world is like, you might be doing wrong. And he's like, I don't fucking think so. <laughs> I've got Al Pacino. Um, and we're going to go for it. Um, he, yeah, he had an incredible decade. And 
So you want to start with the controversy around this movie? It is an interesting controversy, and it's interesting to reanalyze in our very charged political time. Um, but yeah, even when it came out, when they were sh- even when they were shooting it in yeah. 1979, there were riots around and like protests around the movie where they were shooting it on location because people thought that the depiction of the gay community was horrific and unflattering and problematic and potentially harmful to the community. Right. So much so that most of the dialogue in this movie is like pretty obviously dubbed because all of the on location audio was unusable because of the protests. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then like it's found its way after 1980 to be adjacent to or referenced by people who have committed acts of bigotry towards the gay community. Which is, I think, like a misreading of the movie. I at first thought that was a misreading of the movie. But as I've considered it more, I do sort of believe that this movie is a harmful thing to the LGBT space. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's intentionally so. But I think if you really look at the scenes that depict the S&M world. It's played for horror. It's like not played for like acceptance and or kink. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not even that campy. It's really just like, this is akin to seeing like someone's body torn apart is to see it thrust in this like quote unquote unnatural way. Hmm. I I agree. Definitely rides the line between like, fascination and luridity in a way that like a movie like this would never be made now um like the way that friedkin is interested in these clubs is i thought it's definitely exploitative i think the funniest piece of trivia about this movie having like a cultural presence is that there's like a the Hollywood lore around the 20 minutes of like eyes wide shut footage they have in this movie of like what the the acts being done at the S&M club mm. and so that's one piece but then the better cultural reference point is that uh James Franco some years ago made a movie about like the finding and reshooting of that footage like what a weird fucking there's an easy way to balance this which is just to have pacino interact in an earnest way with more members of this community which would make it go down easier politically and also just be a better movie al pacino this is a classic like he doesn't talk to enough people to make the world come alive i think this movie like serpico toes the line of what pacino's Steve Burns, what his what the sexuality is there. Yeah. And in the way that Serpico finds him in compromising positions that other people misunderstand, Cruising almost plays it for compromising positions that the viewer could potentially misunderstand. And then blurring the how far is this guy gonna go? And then ultimately saying that not to spoil cruising, but I almost think the big takeaway at the end is that too much exposure to this community and repressed sexuality leads to violence. You mean him freaking out at the, uh, in that apartment at the end? 
every and this is like a pre-AIDS movie too. Everybody in this movie basically ends up dead. Like all the gay characters. You don't think that the violence he shows at the end is also just a product of the fucking murder case he's working and the idea that like he's supposed to almost get murdered as part of his job? I think that's a big part of it. But I think the takeaway at the end is that he's the killer. The end of the movie where it's Karen Allen tries on the outfit that's the same outfit as the killer wears and he looks at himself in the mirror and then looks at like you, the viewer, and then the movie cuts. But we know he's not the killer. How do we know that? He's never in the same space as the killer. The killer totally disappears once he gets on the case. You see the killer in the beginning and several times during the murders. It's not him. No, I understand that it's a different actor. But the idea is that he's the one who's the killer. Like the the movie just fucked with you and cast somebody else like when he's his Mr. Hyde. Oh, I see. Although, I don't know, man, because I think that the, 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 the scene of Paul Sorvino, who plays his detective boss, discovering um, his dead friend at the end who gets murdered by his James Remar boyfriend, I think that's like an opening up of the world. That's like this becoming, I think that's Paul Sorvino realizing that like this is not just some fucking like tiny subculture that he can not give a shit about and then give some give a leather clad murderer eight years in prison for murdering six people like this is a wider world where innocent people are gonna die and it's because he turned al pacino into a crazy person by making him do this crazy scheme like innocent people are gonna continue to die i think it's a super dark read but i don't think that's a product of the homophobia i really think the ending kind of ruined that read for me i see what you're saying and like see how the movie then is sort of like the serpico of the snm world but i don't think it thinks that ultimately yeah man i think that this movie would have a better reputation now if it went further like i when you read the synopsis for the movie of like you know this like awakens thing like this job awakens things in the al pacino character that he's not expecting i think you expect him to have sort of like influential and complicated like ideas about like who he's attracted to and that doesn't really happen it's just like he's fucking karen allen constantly to prove to the audience that he's straight and then like one time he can't perform and is it because a super conservative read would be that it's because he was around these men and two would be you got too close to the flame right <laughs> or again like he it's is staying up all fucking night and never coming home and uh is like thinking about murder 24 7 which might but don't you think it's problematic that the movie posits that like those are the two ends of a spectrum of trauma what are the two ends like being involved in the S&M slash gay community in the West Village in the early 1980s slash being so overworked and over whatever from your job that you've forgotten who you are. Like they're both presented as like negative ends of like this heart of darkness this guy is going down. It, it, it kind of sucks because like the best scenes in the movie I think are also like the scenes that might like make you cringe a little bit. Like Pacino wandering into the S&M club on quote-unquote precinct night where everyone is dressed as a cop (laughs) but he's not and the bartender's just like your attitude ain't right pal get out of here like that 
is like a beautiful, like a wonderfully staged, like hallucinatory, like moment in the movie and such a great irony that Friedkin is teeing up. Um, but yeah, sometimes you just want him to have some fucking conversations with people. And also like it frustrated me in a detective movie sense. Cause like, that's his job. Like go right. talk to some people. Um, but then I think my favorite moment and the one I'll share a clip for is when he does finally get the scene, when he thinks he's found the killer. Yeah. How big are you? Party size. What are you into? I go anywhere. I don't do anything. That's cool. Hips or lips. You see a lot of interesting spaces, but you don't see him do a lot of interesting police work. And then, no. and then all of a sudden he's just like, through other people's investigative work, through like fingerprint units and Paul Servino being like, look at the registrar of the Columbia University professor who was killed. He kind of just like zeroes in by virtue of other people's investigative tactics onto the killer and then sort of like almost like intimidates him into a hookup. Like the, the their, their meeting at the end is really interesting because I did not detect an ounce of seduction or lust there it just felt like disdain it's like you really fucking well, that's think what i'm talking you can do about this? that's what i'm talking about with this movie having this very sort of you know dark view of these hookups is that there's showing that there's very little difference between someone about to be murdered in the woods and like two guys going off in a romantic rendezvous oh sure like that to me doesn't pass the smell test if anything maybe it's just boring um, but I also think there is a deep sort of funnier irony in the fact that here's a guy who's undercover and nobody other than his boss knows he's doing it, but also he's not qualified to be doing what he's doing and doesn't do, like you said, a lot of interesting police work and also doesn't catch the fucking killer. Right. He, he at worst didn't catch the killer at best. He is the killer. <laughs> Wait, so maybe I'm being super fucking dumb. So the guy that he shoots who's about to knife him at the end is not the murderer? No, it's just a random guy. How do you he know that? He just starts stalking. He starts having relationships with these men. And his last relationship is the Columbia student who has written letters that are like similar to what this guy chants to himself when he kills people right but are ultimately not the same it's like not that guy but i think my read on how do we know it's not that guy i thought i thought i mean that's not the same actor as the beginning i thought he was writing letters to his dad in sort of like a son of sam way yeah but his dad's dead and he never sent any of the letters and he's just a columbia student who fits the physical description of this killer and likes maybe that al pacino becomes obsessed with and maybe wants to have a relationship with maybe wants to pin the murders on. So we think but, that we think that that guy only tries to stab Pacino at the end because he's scared Pacino's he going to do it to him. Second. He stabs him second. No, the Columbia student has the knife out first. Okay. He has the knife out first, but the person who like instigates the altercation is Pacino. Hmm. Interesting. I think Pacino's the killer. Maybe I 
was prejudiced against that Columbia student because he liked to go running in jeans. And I was like, that's your murderer. Yeah, that, that's your murderer right that, there. That's a murderer move right there. If you're going to turn me on to a different theory about this movie, it better start and end with the jeans. And in the following scene, he's lifting weights and proves that he does own sweatpants. And it's like, why did you, why did you run in jeans, sir? Maybe I misinterpreted I this fucking movie. Yeah, because I think there's something compelling, too, about him getting stabbed and totally caught and him being like, it wasn't me, guys, and like not being proud or anything. Like, I think the other killers, at least in movies, that's the beat of the movie where he's like, oh, I'm Kevin Spacey and like your wife's head's in a box, but you also kind of caught me. Yeah. Like, he doesn't want to have fun with these cops. He's not playing a game. No. He's he's been stabbed by this guy. He's in the same boat as the other guy that they beat up on the, some scenes earlier. Interesting. One of my favorite lines in this movie, and I think it says a lot about these movies or this movie's politics, is after that they see that guy get beat up, Al Pacino calls out Paul Sorvino for that treatment. And he's like in this line of work, man, you're going to find a lot of weird little guys like that who don't know why they feel this way. Right. Which is the perfect description of Al Pacino in these first two movies. He is a weird little guy and he doesn't know why he has these urges. Right. Before we rate cruising, I want to say like my big, my big joke of like the funny version of cruising is like, Al, you're headed undercover because the killer is really into like short darkly complected curly haired guys in their late 20s and then we watch cruising as just like nobody hooks up with him because he's not the killer's type because he's 40 years old <laughs> right he is clearly not 28 in this movie he looks interesting he yeah. looks kind of strange in this movie i think because like he's they're clearly asking him to like lift some weights but he's like got kind of he has like bags under his eyes, but his like features haven't like sunk to the point where he's kind of like handsome in heat. Um, but he right. looks weird in this movie. I-, I could argue that Al Pacino is just sort of a weird looking guy. Oh, deaf. And I would say it's hard to pick which is the worst haircut of all six of these movies. I think it's Sea of Love without question. Sea of Love is a terrible. The, the the part down the middle is yeah. Awful. Slick it back for God's sake. Well, shit, man. Yeah, what are you? I feel like I need to watch Cruising again because you're telling me that it's. I feel like you're almost telling me it's both a better and worse movie than I thought it was. Because <laughs> you're like it's more I think offensive. It's a different movie than you think it is. Okay. I think it's like bad not quite what paul verhoeven will try to do in 10 years Mm -hmm. and it's not terribly interested in the representation of queer life as anything more than something that leads to violence and has kind of a cop-out film school ending bad bad i'm gonna say bad good which and which is your right. All right. Sea of Love, 1989. A detective investigating a series of murders becomes involved with a woman who may be the culprit. If you thought that cruising... Well, actually, I'll put it to you. Which 
ludicrous movie premise is more ludicrous? Cruising or Sea of Love, or are they equal? I think this one, strangely, requires more suspension of disbelief than Cruising. Yeah. Because at no point... Cruising is watching a man descend into his job so much so that he like loses his own personality, or so you claim. This movie <laughs> is more about this guy doing his job and then because of sex says, fuck it. Sure. Well, this is, okay. So this movie, I think fits a definition of the erotic thriller of the erotic thriller that I heard like Wesley Morris, uh, kind of recoin the other day on a podcast where he's just like to qualify as an erotic thriller. You have to have a movie where if you take out the sway of the sex, the movie makes no sense. And I think Sea of Love fits that to a T. If you don't believe that the sex they're having is enough to bend the course of his life and make him do all the wrong things, like you don't believe in Sea of Love. Yeah, absolutely. You have to go in with that being something you can possibly believe to appreciate this movie. And I got to be honest, I'm on board. I believe in Ellen Barkin. I don't know if the movie Ellen Barkin is a babe both I told you this both in 1989 when this movie was released and up to and including Ocean's 13 where she's like sucking on Matt Damon's (laughs) prosthetic nose I'm with you I'm with you um yeah she's great in this movie so this is directed by uh Harold Becker who is no Sidney Lumet, William Friedkin, Michael Mann, or Christopher Nolan. He is talking about he did Domestic uh, Disturbance and Mercury Rising. uh, More famous movies of his would be Taps, Vision Quest, Pacino again, and City Hall. Um, This is a Richard Price script. I love Richard Price. Yeah, me too. I think he's a great novelist, and I think he's also a really decent screenwriter and television developer person. Totally. Um, but if you told me that the night of came from the same pen as sea of love, I would yeah, laugh in your this face is and way spit on your shoe. than your average price. <laughs> way That's, it's, absolutely. It, it, it begins the, the trend that I'll call the, the Pacino turn into like hokey police tropes. Wait, you'd spit on my shoe. Is that what you said? <laughs> Yeah, laugh in your face and spit on your shoe. <laughs> I like it. Um, I feel like that is something a character in this movie would say. Sure. Let's... Probably uh, an incredible John Goodman. Yes. So let's, because I think this is where you're going, let's place, let's place him here. Uh, Pacino's 80s, if you don't know, are very weird. He's got cruising as in the first year of the 80s, and then he does Scarface in 82 or 83, and then he has a complete, like an all world bomb in this movie called revolution that I'd never even heard of, but cost something like $30 million to make a historical epic about like American revolution fur trappers cost 30 million to make made <laughs> under 500,000. Oh, man. How do you do that? So then he does a bunch of theater to, I think probably, you know, try to get away. Rehabilitate his image. Yeah. <laughs> And this is the comeback movie. First movie he's made in four years. I heard from one of you guys you caught a good one. Face down taxpayer, back of the head in his own bed. Your guy put an ad in the singles magazine, right? There's some psycho woman out there killing guys. Wanna know how we catch her? We put our own ad in. 
We set up dates with 30, 40, 50 of the ladies who answer. We take them out, some restaurant, some bar, get their prints on a wine glass. Bingo, she's dropped. I don't believe in wasting time on this kind of stuff. You know what you know and you go with it. You go with what? I believe in animal attraction. I believe in love at first sight. I believe in this. And he comes back and he, um, I think you're right, is in a in a new mode as like my new thing is being tired and my voice being down here. <laughs> yeah, my voice is down here and I haven't slept in days. It's his new, I mean, I guess he hadn't slept in the other movies too. He probably doesn't sleep in any of these films. He is at the end of his rope after all. Um, That's right. But in this one... I think he also leans into maybe it was Brian De Palma who like broke him during Scarface, but into the like, Hey Al in this scene, just like wave a machine gun around and just shout at the top of your lungs. I th- Cause he kind of does that a couple times. I here. think weirdly that's another Wesley Morris theory where like Pacino at some point pitched up his performances in such a way that he could never pitch them back down. And I think that's Scarface and he wins an Oscar for fucking doing it in scent of a woman. Which is, god damn it. <laughs> right. And he also becomes very, like, as you said before we started recording, memeable. Mm-hmm. Like, this one, he's got his, I think maybe a better than she's got a great ass in his come the wet ass hour, I'm everybody's daddy. <laughs> Let me play it. Let me tell you something about this. All these people in here with their rocks and their furs, they get robbed, they get raped. I'm all of a sudden their daddy. See, come the wet ass hour. I'm everybody's daddy. I am scared to ask this question, Noah, because I think you will have an answer for me. But what does that mean? I think what that phrase means is that, like, when shit hits the fan, like, he's the one changing the diaper. Oh, okay. That sounds better than like, thought. These that are all sense. children who need their diapers changed. And come the wet ass hour, he's going to come take the shit off of them and make it better he becomes i think when we say self-parody like we often mean it in like a very very insulting way but like you know you act for 65 or 60 years like eventually yeah you are gonna do self-parody if you're like super famous and you're in 70 movies and you start to get that cagey thing of like if i'm watching a pacino detective movie and he doesn't freak the fuck out at like two or three times then like i'm not watching this and he starts to make yeah. good on that promise if he doesn't talk about wet butts pretty soon <laughs> i'm walking out of this place yeah so yeah he freaks out on all these movies up to this point he definitely um, freaks out but i think this movie whereas cruising like it tried to do it with his neighbor that he connects with at the coffee shops or whatever I didn't feel like that quite landed and we didn't even talk about it. Right. Um, that's how moved we were. That's how moved we were by it. Right. But in this one, it finds him a really good sparring partner in the first half with John Goodman. And then in the second half with Ellen Barkin, but Goodman's great in this. This is. is like early Goodman. And he's just like bopping from scene to scene and down for fucking anything. He's very charming, but he also has that thing that the Coen brothers are so good at tapping into where like, are the things he's down for like too malicious? And sometimes the answer is, yeah, 
This movie is a very curious mix of like kookier crime movie tropes, but also I think the thing that makes this movie stand out, maybe the deepest thing about it, is this real like deep sense of loneliness that pervades this movie. Um, When his dad, his like drunken, barely vocal father, like feeds him the poem that his mom gave like the wooing poem that they end up printing to get the murderer. That's kind of like a sad scene. And you know who else is horrifyingly yeah. sad is the the older woman who's first in the speed date line who he like offends and she's oh like, Oh my God. You're not going to call but me. But this movie has good, powerful scenes like that yeah. where you like find the emotional edges of things. Like, yeah, like the woman that there, she's just basically a, a witness to a, like a larger sting operation. And she like really gets her heart hurt. Yeah. I love that. That's legit. I love, frankly, the opening scene of the Meet the Yankees breakfast. That feels way out of place to me. I think that that's a pretty interesting cold open into how crafty the police can get here. That feels like it belongs in Beverly Hills Cop. What are you talking about? I don't know that it has any slapstick to it. And, like, the fact that he tries to convince those two guys that he's Phil Rizzuto is, like, kind of funny because Al Pacino does look a lot like (laughs) Phil Rizzuto. Let's talk about Ellen Barkin. That's another sad sort of lonely character. Yeah. You know, this idea, I mean, you figure out at the end, this sort of woman trying to start over again after being in, like, a horribly abusive relationship. Mm Mm-hmm. I think she is an underrated actor in general and kind of perfectly cast here. The outline of Ellen Barkin is Barbara Stanwyck. Like the way she walks down that, you know, his very creepy ill lit apartment hallway and to kind of like surprise him in the middle of the night is classic femme fatale. But then her face and her accent and everything about the way she carries herself is like very grounded, like old Brooklyn or Queens. It's like a great mix of price reality with, Hollywood um, archetype. Hottest thing she does in the movie, by far, and like also like sort of unexpected choreographed sex is like they're making out for the first time, and then she kind of pushes him back against the wall and does like a WWE like ring walk as she removes her jacket and presents herself to no one and then joins him in a circle back at the wall. That shit was fire, <laughs> as they say. I have to say that I, throughout cruising, was not that drawn to Al Pacino physically. But when they have the scene in the bodega where his, like, chest kind of pops out and he, like, brushes his hand over her leg, like, that to me, like, that was the moment where I was like, what's Al up to? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Can we spoil Sea of Love? Skip ahead two minutes if you don't want sea of love spoiled for you yeah i mean i think this movie it's so funny how like pigeonhole casting kind of spoils movies these days it's like michael rooker's in this movie he's definitely the villain um i think this movie literally cheats um because so you see two of the previous murders which you're kind of wondering like what sort of what sort of sex position are like these guys and Ellen Barkin maybe into where they're like down they're face down on the bed butts in the air they seem like they're orgasming 
I don't know that we establish semen. Okay. The, There's I, blood for what sure. What I'm trying to say is that the cheat of the movie is that the two guys you see get killed, they seem really, really into it. Like they're in the middle of a sex act. But if the movie yes. posits that Michael Rooker is behind them, vengeance killing these men for sleeping with his wife, then... His now ex-wife, yeah. His now ex-wife, then uh, the guys would seem scared and they don't seem scared. I think that's like actual cinematic cheating and you can't do that. Yeah. I think it's a more interesting movie if she is the fucking killer. Of course it is. Yeah, well, this maybe is maybe he's the killer again. This is a, it's a cheap th- it's a cheap thriller twist that the movie um it is. Well, it just absolves them of any like bad shit they may have done. So if like she didn't kill any, hit, like any of the guys, then it's fine if Al Pacino's like with her at the end. Yeah, and then the end is the end is weird because they're like sort of in that proverbial Michael Douglas Sharon Stone. I know that's three years later kind of dance of like he's the used cop, she's the eternal femme fatale, and then they have this sort of like odd coda at the end where he's just like, "I'm sober now," and she. Is just like I'd like to move back to York, Pennsylvania, and then they like walk off arm in arm to be folksy together. I it doesn't yeah. fit. Yeah, I mean this movie like goes for laughs at the end, which is stupid because it's not that funny of a movie. I mean it has humorous moments, but yeah, the like they lived happily ever after thing is far less interesting to me, and ultimately why I think this movie is a bad good. I'm right there with you, but I think it's pretty bad good. Yeah, it's like very digestible and straightforward and if anything, too straightforward. Speaking of a movie I could probably watch all of forever again and again. It's 1995's Heat. Synopsis colon, a group of professional bank robbers start to feel the heat. (laughs) The titular heat from police when they unknowingly leave a clue at their latest heist. He's here. search for the scent of your prey and then you hunt them down that's the only thing you're committed to it keeps me sharp on the edge where i gotta be you want to be making moves on the street allow nothing to be in your life that you cannot walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you spot the heat around the corner my life's a disaster zone because i spend all my time chasing guys like you around the block I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. Michael Mann, uh, arguably peak Michael Mann, in the middle of the '90s, three-hour runtime. If you've probably heard of Heat, right? It's the uh, famous De Niro Pacino diner scene. They're reunited across the timelines of Godfather Part Two. They finally get to be in the same room. De Niro's the uh, master thief. Pacino is the the coked up cop we got to talk about his his cocaine use but okay so explain to people if they don't know if they haven't seen the youtube supercuts pacino's performance in this movie um i mean he's a cocaine addicted cop 
not in like a, an overt way. He's also a, like a drunk too. This I think is a very similar character. When I was talking about the four and a half characters he plays in these six movies, this one I think is the same character as Sea of Love, just further down the road. And notably in Los Angeles, a far better haircut, a better tan. His skin is fitting better on his face. Great, very great, but very nineties suits. Yes. Did you re- or notice or remember or put together during this watching of Heat that the opening of Heat is very similar to the opening of Dark Knight? Um, yeah, I've felt that way before. I think because Nolan okay. explicitly is just like Michael Mann. Is, it was a huge influence on how I did crime in the Batman movies. And I mean that in the highest of compliments because oh, yeah. I think that's like one of the best cold openings to a movie maybe ever. The opening of Heat this is like a close Heat second. Is so good because I even had the experience of like I like Heat. I've seen Heat probably once a year for the last four years. I, you know, even so, I was like, okay, I'll get into the iconography again. It's three hours. I got to steal myself for that. And then like as I put it on, I was like, oh fuck! The movie opens with one of the great heists of all time. This is going to be a pleasure. I need not steal myself for anything. Absolutely. And it also shows some teeth too. I think when you go from the opening heist where De Niro, Kilmer, Sizemore, um, who's the other guy? Oh, you can just call him Wayne Grow. Uh, Danny Trejo is the fifth. Yeah. Danny Trejo and this guy, Wayne Grow. That's the character name. Kevin Gage is the actor. Uh, yeah. They're knocking over this, armored car that has some papers in it that they need they end up being like bonds of some kind anyway classic 90s bonds scheme the heist is going perfectly though until wayne grow loses his shit and like needs to get it on and like he was kills. looking at me man i had to get it on <laughs> he kills like some of these unsuspecting and pretty innocent freelance security guys that are like in the car right. And that's really the reason that it gets so much of the titular heat. Totally. One more great thing about the opening that I realized for the first time watching this, you know, the whole arc of the movie for Pacino's Vincent Hanna is again, like he cannot be a good husband. He can like tries and fails to be a good stepfather. Um, you know, he is going to get sucked back into this job, into this cat and mouse, of course. And the way that the opening is intercut with De Niro's plan working perfectly, but Vincent having sort of like tender morning sex with his wife is just like, Vincent is behind. He will never get to have this like uh, intimate of a moment again in the movie because he's behind and Neil Macaulay is ahead. And that's like the cool thing about this movie too, in the way it reveals the chessboard, because it's like, hey, here's these like six guys that are doing this thing. And then when the police come moments later to like survey the scene, you're introduced then and in the following like police precinct to like a lot of different people. And I think it's smart casting too to like get a lot of recogni- like recognizable faces in the mix. Um, you know, you've got, yeah. I mean, of course, Al Pacino, but then like Wes Studi, Michael T. Williamson, Ted Levine, uh, what's his name Tom Noonan like that guy too yeah there's great people on the edge of this movie uh, William Fickner Hank Azaria Henry Rollins <laughs> I have to say though I feel like if this movie does get a little lost 
it's by casting really great female actors and not knowing really what to do with them. Amy Brenneman, I think, is like she verges on something cool with the love interest to Robert De Niro. Um, but at the same time, watching this movie now for maybe the 10th time, like, why is Natalie Portman there? Like, is her suicide attempt really that important to Heat? I think, well, I don't know if you can blame Heat for that necessarily, because if that is not a 12-year-old Natalie Portman, you just forget that part of Heat. But she stands out so much because she's like going to become one of the three biggest movie stars in the film. But yeah, I'm with you that part. And the the women in the movie, the actresses are unfortunately just like relegated. This is a movie about men and the code of men and the failings of those codes. And the women are just the negative space through which like their failure is bounced. That's unfortunate. But that's the kind of movie it is. The thing that really jumped out to me this time, and I don't know why I really hadn't thought about this before, but so it's very obvious if you've seen Heat that Neil and Vincent, the De Niro and the Pacino characters, are two sides of the same coin, right? They clearly see themselves in each other, uh, but there can be only one winner. That's what the whole diner scene is kind of about. Um, But it's amazing to me and a testament to Michael Mann that the movie calibrates their meeting in such a way that when they are apart... They really could not be more different. Like Pacino is freaking the fuck out, chipping coke, singing songs to unsuspecting informants. By the time I get to Phoenix, they'll be rising. (laughs) And De Niro is like, if there's a comedy to his performance, it's like the underacting. Amy Brenneman's just like, my family are Scotch-Irish. They came here in the 1500s and settled in Appalachia. What about you? The Bay Area. They could not be more different, but it's so convincing when they come together that Pacino calms to hit his frequency and De Niro opens up to hit his frequency. And like, if they behave the same, like the same when they were apart, the movie would be boring or laughable. And it's just a testament to the way man can bring them together. I think. I think this is also one of the better, like latter day De Niro performances too. Cause he's, he's doing the quiet tough guy in a way, I mean, I, maybe he's found it again um, with the Irishman. But, like, this is Irishman level good, if not better, because he's mobile. The Irishman, I think the key mode is sadness. And here it's anger. It's This is much scarier. Oh, yeah. I mean, that dude's going to do anything. Like, I love that shot where they keep where man keeps coming back to Amy Brenneman waiting in the like loading dock parking area for him to come out of the hotel yeah. and he she has no idea why he's gone in there in the back way or what he's doing and what she sees is just like bedlam and sue with like fire trucks show up people like run out of every door and then the police totally just taking in the carnage of whatever he's been up to. Yeah, including police shooting at the other entrance of the hotel. We should talk about shooting because also this is, for me, Michael Mann renders the scariest gunfire I've ever heard in a movie. Yes, it sound, it's more piercing than, and like, yeah, upsetting. And it's like just a little bit louder than maybe you're used to. I can't imagine seeing this movie in like the theaters. I bet it's deafening. I forgot to ma- mention Ashley Judd too. 
She's pretty good. She gets she that scene to like do her thing when um, Kilmer shows up and he's like, I'm your Huckleberry question mark. And she's like, <laughs> oh, no, no, get out of here. And he wanders over to those basketball players and he's like, anywhere I could buy a loaf of bread around here. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> suspicious about that. Oh, man. So what's your Pacino quote for Heat? Oh, man, my Pacino quote for Heat, of course. Of course. I just want to get mixed up with that bitch. Because she got a great ass. And you got your head all the way up it. An underrated part of that clip, and it's sort of like legendary, the suppositions that Azaria and Tone Logue are not ready for what he's going to do in those scenes and are so fucking confused. And I think at the end of that, the closest thing you have to proof is that right after he goes, Oh, wait, have it. Azaria just goes, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Which sounds like an earnest reaction too. I was not ready I for that. I feel like people don't remember the rest of that. I guess I could play it, but the rest of it, which is ferocious, aren't I? When I think of asses, a woman's ass, Something Some comes out comes of me. Comes out of me. <laughs> okay, I think I just have one last point about uh, Pacino's stardom here. It really struck me in Heat because Harold Becker is not really a compelling enough visualist to make me think about Pacino in a given way. But both Lumet and Friedkin, because of the style of gritty movies they're making and their interest in Pacino as a star in these infiltrating these strange spaces, they love to shoot him at a distance. And you have that kind of strange posture he has of like his head weighs 20 pounds and his arms are out of, <laughs> out of rhythm with the way he's strutting around. And here you have man giving him the full-on movie star glory where like when he runs, you'll notice it's like a lot of top half of the body. So it looks really good. There's no like embarrassing posture or anything like that and also just the way man moves his camera in a scene to create speed and mobility of pacino like walking up toward a like a command unit he really has a wonderful idea of how he wants this guy to look and move and there's something like i mean the what i think of as the climactic scene but really isn't the like shootout down that la street um there's something like just glorious about, I mean, it goes, it harkens back to his Scarface days where he's like holding this uh, assault rifle running down the it's street. so big and he's so small. <laughs> he's so little, but he still manages to like do, do his thing. How great is it? How little they have to say to each other at the end. All, De, all De Niro says to him is, I told you, I told you I wasn't going back to prison. And Pacino just goes, I guess so. Or like, I see that. And, you know, so much, like, bad, mediocre movie logic dictates, like, one final, like, we really were the same. Or, like, I told you you couldn't have run me forever, motherfucker. Like, they talked. Like, they've already said everything they have to say. Right. I just love how this movie uses Los Angeles and, like, ending it at the airport is such a funny wink to most people's idea of what bookends Los Angeles. Totally. Not to put too fine a point on it, but I think this movie is a good good, and I'm sorry we don't have like more time to unpack it. Yeah. Maybe we could circle back. Sure. I mean, it's three hours of material. Yeah, Heat's fantastic. If you haven't seen it, you gotta. Should we move into the 21st century? If we have to. That means we're getting dangerously close to now. <laughs> They 
brought him in to solve an unspeakable crime. Detective Dormer, it's such an honor to meet you. I'm Detective Ellie Burr. Welcome to Night Mute. So incredible to be working with you. The Leland Street murders was my case study at the Academy. Someone out there just beat a 17-year-old girl to death. Your job is to find him. Doesn't say in the report that he clipped her nails. He washed her hair. No mutilation? Not this time. He tortures him, makes him do things, and keeps him there for three days. This guy, he crossed the line, and he didn't even blink. Insomnia 2002 is Christopher Nolan, right between Memento and Batman Begins. This is a remake of a Swedish film from about five years earlier. Um, this sure, one it is... doesn't have Al Pacino in it, though. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I regret to say I have not seen that one. I bet it's good, maybe better, who knows. Um, this one is set in Alaska. Two haggard... L.A. homicide detectives are flown up to Nightmute, Alaska to solve this murder because they've got like an old buddy on the crime scene and also their uh, their chief in L.A. is like, you might want to get out of town before Internal Affairs comes after you. Yeah, it's a, which is such a great noir setup. It gives it yes. a lot of layers, too, of like not only did they come to solve the crime, but they came to get away from something, which adds to... The isolation of this beautifully shot but totally isolated location, um, like the the movie sets you up with these visuals of just interesting nothing, like interesting rock for miles, like interesting identical trees for miles. Right, right, yeah. The sort of a uh, the snow capped like almost needle like rocks are juxtaposed with the those white fibers at the beginning. It's almost just like you look in microscope, binoculars, what what at what level would you like to see the layers of this movie? Right. It kind of looks like the Matt Damon planet from Interstellar. Mhm. Mhm. Oh, uh, different DP though. Not Hoyte Van Hoytema. We're at Wally Fister here. Wow. Did yeah. you also forget when you rewatch this movie under the auspices of doing an Al Pacino detective movie pod that Robin Williams is in it. No, I did not fucking forget that. <laughs> I forgot that he was in it. I was I, pleasantly surprised. He's amazing. He is amazing. I've seen that weirdly. This was a movie where like, I didn't realize how many times I'd seen insomnia until like little tiny beats of like their order in the hotel restaurant or Al Pacino being like, there goes my lunch. Um, like I've, my mother probably watched this movie like 10 times in four years and just haven't seen it in a long time. Yeah. I mean, that's a good movie to watch. It's got yeah, a lot of was, layers. This was definitely like a, like a 15 year old chance being like, I like crime movies. My mom yeah. was like, watch this. So We should also say that the crime that brings them up to Alaska is the methodical murder of a local teen. <laughs> this movie has really good... That's what I like about Christopher Nolan is that he's not afraid to do the tropey thing like show a montage of investigation. Right. Like take them to the fucking morgue. Like that's that's the kind of shit that he does and then subverts, which is I think what makes him a really good commercial filmmaker. But this one delivers with the 
them looking at the naked dead body and then like them talking to people and then he's got that great Pacino's got that great monologue where they're like trying to rattle the ex-boyfriends when he's in the school and he's like playing tough he's like I don't care about you and then he just like scares the shit out of him Mm -hmm. he's really good at scaring teens which may be a good point uh, point in the podcast to point out my favorite Al Pacino acting out on screen just a little visit to the dump. <laughs> this is the spot where your best friend's naked body was dumped. Wrapped up in garbage bags. Incredible. There's your... Uh... Not only dumped, but wrapped in garbage bags. That's a strange scene because it comes on the heels of like his one moment of sexual energy, which feels forced because like he's old and also christopher nolan like doesn't do very well with sexual energy that's not one of his fortes so like yeah he's in this scene with this high school girl yeah it starts out as like that scene with uh brad pitt in once upon a time in hollywood Hollywood. and then like does not have that sexy energy at all no it's really weird you want to play chicken with that 16 wheeler does that turn you on it's like no i never asked for that yeah and she's sort of like playing the part but like there's something very funny about the way she goes yeah we can go anywhere you want you know me the impressionable girl you older cop (laughs) cut that's the stage direction yeah. <laughs> he certainly is the older cop in this movie. Did you notice how much he snaps in these movies? Yeah, he snaps a lot. He chews a lot of gum in this one especially. He's he's gum heavy. He even yeah. talks about it. That's true. I love to chew gum. <laughs> Gets off the plane, goes Halibut fishing capital of the world. Okay. <laughs> He accepts. He accepts that premise. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Um, can we talk about how this movie is very smart in not just putting the whole thing on Pacino by casting Robin Williams and then giving them that incredible fairy scene? The fairy th- scene is great. the The log chase scene is one of the that's best a good one too. Scenes in any. I don't. I think this is probably lesser Nolan at the end of the day, but that scene's one of the best I think that's ever appeared in a Christopher Nolan movie. For sure, trapped in water is a that's a terrifying premise. Yeah, I liked the irony there too of the like. You know, the whole thing is he can't sleep, right? Because it's the middle of summer in Alaska. There's 23 and a half hours of daylight or something. Right. And like there he is, like finally in the dark and all he, he like he can't find the light. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Him versus the sun is also a big battle. But this movie is like it has that good noir premise. It's so moody and fun i think maura tierney does a great job and she delivers that great sort of moody noir line of like people are here in alaska for two reasons like they were born here or they came here to get away from something else and i wasn't born here Mm -hmm. like that's a great moment the script is good like i think when nolan lets other people in maybe because he didn't write this script uh hillary seitz wrote it yeah, what do we know her from? 
Oh, my favorite eagle eye. Eagle eye's not good. And she's working on that Ruth Ware novel, uh, The Woman in Cabin 10. I think the only thing that doesn't, one of the only main things that doesn't play for me in the script is this idea that seems a little forced of Robin Williams. So Robin Williams plays, I think, credibly, like a regionally successful, almost suspiciously prolific crime writer, right? But I like it's not that kind of meta noir movie, nor do I think like Nolan really gives a shit about like Agatha Christie paperback fiction. So whenever Robin Williams is just like, you need a wild card, and like Charlie Kelly and Sonny in Philadelphia like holds up the tape recorder and is like, wild card. <laughs> um and that's also the climactic line before he dies. Like that stuff feels forced to me. But it's one of the only I criticisms know, I have. I was pretty taken with the creepiness of this guy being so successful in such a specific space that he like thinks he can kill someone. There's something like really because it plays well with that sort of mythology that the Pacino character has created for himself in that if he did it for the right reasons, like it's somehow fine. Mm -hmm. I mean, spoiler alert, his whole thing is that he planted blood on like the shirt of someone who actually hadn't committed a murder to get justice for when he'd gotten off on a technicality of something he definitely did do. I just think you're in like knives out like deconstructionist territory by that point and this is like a grittier crime movie than that. I didn't buy it. The other things though, other elements of Robin Williams are fantastic and you're totally right. This movie would be like 20% worse if we did not have somebody who could stand up to Pacino in those scenes. And just the it does a great job of using Robin Williams inherent kind of like the warmth that comes off of him. When he does dramatic roles, he does these like little ingratiating laughs on the phone of like, oh, yeah, I know you can't sleep, Will, um, that are like really creepy as he sort of like successfully tries to bring Will toward him. Yeah. No, I love their back and forth. I mean, I th- for me, I think the chemistry is as good as that in Heat, and that makes for like a smart I mean, a smart way to both market and make a movie by having these stars. Of course, like that premise will rupture with movies that go back to the well too often, like Righteous Kill. A movie we will not be discussing today. So other than like a few moments of me, like script goofiness, I've also maybe just like seen this movie too many times. Like, I don't think it's like really breaking new ground. It's just like a highly, highly capable, well, it's a remake, of course, um, but a delivery of like a relationship that you've seen in a really interesting setting with some good performances. I think it's good, good. Yeah. And I think it's also an interesting moment and an interest, like this is the natural bookend to a movie like Serpico, which if you can believe it or not, is the movie we started talking about when this podcast began. Um, because this is when, this is when the morality cracks, of the cop. This is when he's still pursuing this righteous thing that he's always been after, but it just that too many things caught up with him. And it's interesting to see. We, you know, in the last like five years, just because of, I guess I'll throw this on the table because of sort of like things that have been happening in the world and my political persuasion, I've grown more and more to see cops in movies 
as like sort of monstrous, especially when they like break the law. But there's something like very compelling about reminds me of the Bong Joon-ho movie Memories of Murder where he's just like I can eyeball it in a way a citizen can't the jury had never met a child murderer and I had and that's like that's a pretty creepy compelling argument for like maybe you know but that's but I'll never know yeah man so good good on insomnia for you good good for sure cool I think this was my favorite overall rewatch oh yeah because, like, Heat's so long. Yeah. This one's, like, nice in two hours. Uh, sure. And you know when I watched A Chance? A Saturday afternoon. No. Oh. North Star of the show. Speaking of films that are at least, but not limited to, 20% less good than all the <laughs> other Al Pacino movies. It's 2017's Hangman. Which is not a movie you've heard of. It's not a movie that anyone's heard of. <laughs> But by the way, we should say that like the reason you did this was not to torture me, but we had the idea that like we should do one from every decade. What I think we should have done is when we decided to do two from the eighties, we should have left Hangman by the wayside, but here we are. A premise will not be broken on this show. Nope. It can be added to, but not broken. <laughs> yeah. We won't let a movie like Hangman destroy our premise. So in Hangman, a homicide detective brings his partner out of retirement to help catch a serial killer whose crimes are based on the children's game Hangman. Let me stop you right there with the IMDb premise for Hangman. That's not ever, none of that is ever explained, including the Hangman game in any part of this movie. Well, also like it doesn't follow the rules of Hangman because if you can guess the word, then the killer would stop. Unclear what happens. (laughs) Yeah. If who, Whomever they solve the Wheel of Fortune puzzle, will he stop killing? Well, that's the whole problem with this, just on the face of it. We haven't even gotten into the plot of it. The, the idea that Hangman, it ends with the person dying. You don't kill a person every time a letter is guessed. So there's like no oh, yeah. tension. You kill one person at the end. Yeah, the whole game is for the life of one person who One stick hung. figure, yeah. One stick figure. This right. movie kills dozens of people. 36 years working homicide and end up outside a dive bar doing crossword puzzles. Tell what's on your mind. There's a body over at Wayward Elementary. And a badge number was etched onto a desk at the scene. This wasn't his first victim. We got a serial killer. This movie starts out pretty promisingly. Didn't you think the cold... You didn't think the cold open was kind of fun with a thousand year old Pacino doing Latin crossword puzzles in his car. And then like, then they don't show him driving the car because like Al Pacino can't stunt drive. No, it was cheap and I bad. Think the, the lost uh, or the, the bump into the side of the car is a good like jump scare to start it out with, get a little blood pumping. And then of course it's not Pacino driving the car at 80 years old, 77 years old. But I thought the car chase was pretty good. Where it lost me, though, was like when he announces, well, this is going to be my clip. When he announces that there's like a bomb in this truck that he's been chasing, but he doesn't (laughs) give a shit about the bomb. And then it cuts to a year later and it is not really explained what happens. (laughs) This movie 
made me feel i watched it this morning and i was feeling fine i feel healthy i do not believe i'm afflicted with covid19 but it like made me feel like i was taking a sick day just to watch it because it just reminded me of like something you would see on like usa network in 1999 and the only way i would keep watching would be if i was laid up but i had to watch it for the podcast yeah yeah this is like a vod quality bad like Nicolas Cage Travolta action movie. Like why does he need to He was in Quentin Tarantino movie 2 years later. Like why did he need this role? I would love to read like more reporting on like the financing of like these VOD action movies with like faded stars. Is it just like you get like funding from like a like a chic somewhere and then like the star makes $200,000 so they can you know, buy a new car or something and then they churn the Who shit knows? out. Yeah. Someone needs an operation. Uh, you know, someone's college needs paying for who's to say, I don't know. I would say 2000 and maybe 10, the Jack of HBO movie he did that he got a golden globe for. To, you don't know Jack. Yes. To maybe 2019 is, kind of it's a kind of a 10-year graveyard i mean he's a 70 year old man yeah i mean except of course big asterisks next daniel to 2015's collins. daniel <laughs> collins yeah. danny collins is the name of the movie for which he was nominated for a golden globe do we give a shit about the hfpa no we do not but it's still incredible that he was nominated it is incredible uh it's a great performance that's why he was nominated. Um, Hangman, not a great performance. No. Told you, we were talking about this earlier, Chance. There are scenes in which important characters are being interrogated <laughs> by, uh, like about important plot things. And like Pacino literally walks across the take and exits the yeah. scene to find craft services or something. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. This character so should much so start that- chipping cocaine to involve himself in the interviews a little bit. I miss the Halcyon Coke days of heat and insomnia. The funny thing about this movie is that he seems tireder here than he ever seems in insomnia. It's a little sad to watch him. Yeah, it is. The line of the movie, though, that I think is totally indicative of like where he's at with this movie. And again, good 2019. Good for you, Al. Happy birthday. These movies are largely, <laughs> these movies are largely good. <laughs> His headphones came out. But the line of this movie about how much he like cares to be there and like where he's at in his life is he's talking to Carl Urban and Carl Urban's like, my wife died. I'm really mad. And Al Pacino's like, you don't care if you die? Okay, let's all die. <laughs> oh, man. You should put that one in because I couldn't find a good one for him. Oh, my God. That's great. Uh- the lighting in this movie is terrible. There's like horrifying things happening that are like not scary. Like none of the like brutal sort of like hangman crimes are like staged in a way that is interesting or frightening at all. Um, no. Carl Urban is an interesting presence because he, I can't tell if he's like in on the joke. Of... No, no, he's not. Okay, you you know who's even less in on the joke is poor Brittany Snow who. Is a a Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times journalist who like went from Baghdad to Monroeville anywhere, USA. Yeah. 
who's like trying to interview police for her own reasons. She has she has her own reasons for interviewing police, but like definitely in a sympathetic way. I'm sure she'll have a monologue about it later. The other funny thing about this uh, movie is like, so we've just watched a very like even more than capably directed movie about a small town where like the sun never goes down and it drives the characters crazy. Here's a small town where because of like how rushed the production is and how terrible the lighting is, the sun never comes up and it's like constantly 11 p.m. <laughs> Did you notice it's, that? <laughs> well, I mean, that's also the premise of the movie is that they kill, he kills a person every day at 11 p.m. because of some detail that I can't remember. But it's structured so weirdly that like nobody ever goes home and you can't ever tell when it's a new day. So they're just like in a scene like at the table and they're like, oh, fuck, it's 1059. That happens like, that happens four different times where they say, oh, fuck, it's 1059. I mean, yeah, it is 10.59. I mean, it's 10.59 twice a day, Chance. This movie was, like, made to go on Vudu for three ninety nine, and then to go, like, an iTunes 99 cent rentals. And to wind up in, in podcast genres. star section. I wish faded that... Star I wish that section. wasn't... And again, if I may, happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what else, no, what else about Hangman? Not, it's terrible. This, this movie's not great. Um... And this is an easy bad bad. This is totally an easy bad bad. I was really hoping that this movie would prove some of my like psychosexual theories about Al Pacino's roles in all six of these movies, but they really keep him pretty in the cage, so to speak. Yeah, he's a he's an even older cop in this one. He, yeah, an even older cop. Uh, you think there's gonna be a Hangman too? Uh, God, I, I I lay awake nights thinking about it. The balls on this movie to at the end just like have their crossover be like movie hangman. with that and uh, escape room where they have to both escape the room and play hangman. You know, that does seem like the kind of movie you would coerce me into watching. Oh, my God. If they make a like a hybrid men in black 21 Jump Street movie like they keep <laughs> threatening to, you know, they'd make an escape room hangman movie. A Blumhouse production. Sure. Or Patriot Pictures. Whoever produced this <laughs> garbage funny thing when i didn't want to pay attention to the movie i started googling patriot pictures they have made one financially successful movie do you know what it was hangman 2017 air force one like the movie with uh harrison ford yeah how many movies out of their movies were was it just these two no, they made a bunch of like these straight to VOD schlock, but I wonder if they still have like Air Force One money hanging around because that movie made like. There's always money in Air Force One, right? There, <laughs> <laughs> I bet Air Force One made like 150 mil. Oh, 315 yeah. mil. And think totally. of all that TNT money. Oh yeah. Think of all the iTunes downloads of the Jerry Goldsmith score. The mournful horn residuals. Alfredo Pacino. Alfredo Pacino. What a career. What a set of dynamic police detective roles he has played over the past 80 years. Anything else to say? Or should I bid you adieu in the uh, diction of Vincent Hanna? Bon voyage, motherfucker. You were good. (laughs) I think that does it. Bon voyage, motherfucker. You were good.